really thank you for who you are and what you've done in our lives. Lord, the good times, the bad times, the challenges, the wonderful things, whatever, Lord, I pray that today we will thank you. Lord, I pray this morning as we look at the word of God together that it will become life to us. That, Lord, this will not just be some exercise of um, intellect, but instead, Lord, this will be life, the path to life. Lord, I, I just, I sense this morning there are some people that are here that are struggling with path choices. What path to take? And I pray, Spirit of God, you would just reveal truth today. As we look at God's word together, in Jesus' name, amen. We are going to look at two primary passages this morning. If you brought your Bibles, turn to Psalm 16 and Romans 1. Somehow you could mark it with a piece of paper. Um, we'll be looking at both of those passages. Romans, uh, Psalm 16 and Romans 1, uh, primarily this morning. Hey, I want to thank uh, Pastor AJ for being with us last week. I, I wrote him this week. He's, he's only a shadow of his former self. The brother's lost some weight. He's lost one of me, I think. And uh, he's looking good. Um, was, I saw him. Larry gave me the videotape. Uh, videotape. I'm so stinking old. He gave me the DVD of uh, last week's service so that uh, I could watch it and Good work, camera guys, because I mean, AJ was everywhere. I got to get a little more active. Um, for a skinny white guy, I'm a little too reserved compared to my brother from the other side of the city. So uh, anyway, he was, it was awesome about relationships. Um, actually, I preached on relationships in Missouri last week. So we were preaching the same thing, two different places. Um, and the people in Missouri send their greetings to you guys, uh, Dan Baracco, uh, who's a good friend of our church. Uh, they had a retirement celebration for him last Sunday night. I got to preach on Sunday morning and then celebrate with them on a Sunday night, his retirement. I told him he's got to come spend more time with us now, which he said he wanted to, so um, hopefully he'll be down here soon. Anyway, we'll, I'll talk about a little more about my trip in just a minute as part of the sermon. Um, but <clears throat> this past week, uh, the Barna Report, George Barna, who does surveys all over the, the country, he re- they released a new report on the self-identity of Americans. In other words, they asked Americans, what is it that gives you your identity? What is it that makes you, you, so to speak? And the questions, here are the top seven things that people identified as giving them their self-identity. Are you with me? What makes you, you? What do you think about when you think about you? So here are the top seven. The city or town that I live in, that I identify, it gives me self-identity. My state gives me identity. (laughs) I laughed and I was thinking, unless you live in Alabama during football season, then you got more identity based on uh, the state that you live in. My career is what I believe makes me me. My ethnic group, uh, which I found uh, ironic that it was only fourth. Um, and it, if you're part of a minority group, by the way, it's a little higher. 
but not much. It's still placed fourth, but more people would have, would have said it. Um, most white people don't think of their ethnic group as being a part of their identity. More minority groups do. Uh, third is my religious faith. My religious faith, which is, again, uh, this is an American survey, not a Christian survey. Those who are people of faith, uh, religious faith actually moved up in their identity to number two uh, versus number three. The second is being an American. Being an American, and for Americans, I think this is really ironic, that being American rates ahead of religious faith as a, as a self-identity. Because for many Americans, being American is religious. Um, uh, July 4th is a worship service for many. But um, that's a whole other topic. I'll wait for that uh, later on. Number one, give you your identity. Still in this day and age of Americans of all races, all places, all economic groups, their family gives them the number one identity. Again, I, I would contend, I would contend that this is the reason the enemy is on the attack on the family. If self-identity and God's creation and all that is going on is tied up within the family identity, what better place to really move on the attack? To make us try and redefine family, to make us family split, uh, to just mess up family order. When I do counseling, um, premarital counseling and postmarital counseling, uh, not post, uh, I mean after they were, I don't know, whatever. When I do marriage counseling, I have these certain phrases that I use all the time because it's really easy. Just think of whatever God wants, and then the enemy wants the opposite, right? So I tell couples who I'm doing premarital counseling with, God's goal, um, God, the enemy's goal is to get you into bed and have sex before you get married, and then to keep you from having sex after you get married. Now, usually they stare at me like, I understand the first part, the second part makes no sense to me. Uh, how, could, how could we, marriage and sex are the one thing I got to look forward to in life for some guys, especially, that the thought is just foreign to them. But you talk to a lot of married people. I also find it ironic that many of the couples that I've counseled that had sex before marriage, it is magnified of not having sex after they get married. I know it sounds crazy, but whatever God's goal, God's goal is for you to be pure before marriage, right? Go crazy after you get married. Have fun with each other. Uh, enjoy the life that God has given you on the earth. Now, some of you single people are giggling, but um, sex should be enjoyable. It's the way God made us. The enemy's goal. The enemy's goal is to separate, divide, accuse. Any way he can in our homes. If he can't cause divorce to occur, he'll have two people living under the same house as roommates. I, I mean, anything in the spectrum, if God's plan is for a couple to be in unity, spirit, soul, and body, the enemy will come against it in every way possible. Why? Because... Family draws its name from God our Father. Everything about family comes from him. Some of the truths we've examined so far about family are these. We need to trust God and his word, not our experience and our conscience. Again, I, I, I may keep repeating this like every couple of weeks. 
Um, I, I battle with this. I mean, all the time I battle with this. I don't know about you, but I come up against a situation and my first response is, this seems right. This seems wrong. I'm really for this. I'm against this. But based on this emotion that comes up within me or my experience or my incredible intellect, uh, whatever the case may be, but I've got to go back to, keep going back to, what does God say about this? What is God's word? What does his spirit say? And along the lines, as we've looked at family, we've looked at these truths that I believe God's word said. Gender is created by God. But sin has distorted what God created. Marriage was created by God to be between a man and a woman. Sex was created for marriage. Conflict in all of these areas is inevitable. But the proper resolution of conflict makes us stronger. Today, I want to close out this sermon series by talking about what are the alternatives here? What are the alternatives when it comes to family and living and life? Um, I I only have two points, um, but I think there are only two alternatives. And so I want to present them to you today. Um, I believe within every single person here, there's this innate drive for meaning. What what is this all about? Why am I here? What am I supposed to be doing? How do I find joy and happiness in life? This is not some just philosophical question. I, I know there are people who like to talk about things like this just from a philosophical standpoint. Let's talk about all the angles and I mean, this is really where the rubber meets the road, so to speak, because what you answer about how you're going to find meaning and how you're going to find happiness and ultimately what you're going to worship changes the whole course of things. It is the demand for meaning, the demand for having my desires met that drives my decisions. When I was younger, um, not so much today, but uh, especially growing up, we talked about the alternative lifestyle. Alternative lifestyle. When I was growing up, that was a euphemism for homosexuality. Homosexuality meant alternative lifestyle. But really, what I want to point out to us today is that anything outside of God's design is an alternative lifestyle. That God has a plan, God has a path, God has a truth, and anything outside of that is an alternative. I believe the Bible gives us some clear direction on this. And I want to say at the outset that I only believe that there are two alternatives, so to speak. There's God's way and every other way. God's way and every other way. And I'm going to talk about that this morning. One of the things I I, I want to reiterate is this, though. I believe God created you to have joy and pleasure in life. Uh, I, 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 I think many people see God as someone who wants to rob you of your joy. You know, I would become a Christian, but if I do, then I've I got to join those unhappy people. And by the way, they look at us and see us as the unhappy people, the ones who never do anything fun. All they do is define themselves by what they're against. Don't do this, don't do that, don't do this, don't do that. And I love to do all of those things, so I'm not going to go join them because I know if I join the club, i got to give up all of these things that I like doing. I, I, people, we, if, if we're going to touch the world for Jesus Christ, we have to hold up 
the view that worshiping, following, serving him is a life of joy. Right? I mean, really, what is, what is going to attract us, attract people to Jesus Christ, if not our love for one another and this joy of serving him? I mean, most people don't want to sign up to be a part of something where all they're told is you can't do. You can't, you can't, you can't. Joy is mentioned in the Bible over 650 times. It talks about joy, rejoice, glad, gladness, delight. 650 times. Joy is one of the fruits of the Spirit. God has created us for joy. Again, I, it's not that life is easy. I mean, I think we could all testify to that. There are tough times in life. But the psalmist says, weeping may tarry for the night, but what's coming? Joy comes in the morning. God is a God of joy. He's a God of laughter. He's a God of... He celebrates. He dances over us with singing, according to Zephaniah. Okay, so what is the path to joy? Again, I believe there are only two alternatives. The first is this, the path of personal pursuit. The path of personal pursuit. Mark Twain used to tell this story uh, that goes something like this. When I was a boy, I was walking along the street when I happened to spy a cart full of watermelons. I was fond of watermelons, so I sneaked up quietly and snitched one. I ran to a nearby alley and sank my teeth into it. But no sooner had I done so, however, when a strange feeling came over me. And without a moment's hesitation, I walked back to the cart, replaced the melon, and stole a ripe one. (laughs) I mean, you see where you think the story's going, right? His conscience overwhelms him. He's going to take the melon back, put it back. But no, he just wanted a ripe one. That's the general path that humanity follows when left to our own devices. When left to our own stuff, we are going to follow a path that brings us the most pleasure, the most happiness, and the most satisfaction, at least as we define it. And we'll justify boundaries and moving them in order to meet our own personal goals of happiness, satisfaction, and joy. Here's how Paul addresses this. And I know this passage to many people sounds really harsh, but it's the Bible. So we're going to look at it, okay? Romans 1, verses 21 and following. And by the way, in the context of this discussion, Paul is talking about the path to God. How is man made right in God's sight? And he's, it's a longer discussion that takes up chapters 1, 2, and 3, where he's going to lead to the point to say all have sinned and fall short of God's glory Um, that the wages of sin is death. Uh, He's leading to that point that says no matter what, we all deserve death. So we look at a passage like this, which is kind of the first level of God's revelation where he's going to talk about the wrath of God is turned against sin, and we say, oh, we're not one of those. But then he's going to talk about those who are religious, those who follow the the word of God but still don't have the life of God. So you need to read chapters 1, 2, and 3 to get the whole idea where he says we all stand naked and dirty before God. Um, Only through Jesus Christ are we going to be made right. But in this discussion, he talks about what I believe is the path of personal pursuit, pursuing happiness and joy on our own. And here's what he says. 
For although they knew God, he's talking about mankind, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. He's already said that God has revealed himself in the natural order of things, that God can be seen in nature. And he says about mankind, they knew God, they've seen God, they've seen his handiwork, but they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. But their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. Ultimately, what he's talking about here is idolatry. There's God, we can worship him, or we can worship things of our own design. Now, he's talking about idols made with hands, but really what he's talking about is anything other than God is an object of worship. Let me see if I can place it like this. Every single person in this room worships something. You may say, well, I don't think so. I don't bow down before stuff. I don't, like, worship it. But when you trust in something, when you have confidence in something, when you place your life on a track, you're worshiping that thing. Worship basically says this thing is worthy. This thing is worthy of my attention. This thing is worthy of my uh, ideology. This thing is worthy of my trust. And everybody here trusts something. Are you with me? From a truth standpoint, I don't care uh, whether you trust yourself. Um, will you pray? Will you say, I trust nothingness? You're still placing your trust in something, um, just randomness. I trust you, every, my money, my whatever. Everybody here worships something. And Paul is saying there are two tracks here. There's the worship of God or there's the worship of whatever, created stuff. Everything else is created. God is the only thing eternal, right? Hello? You with me? God is the only thing eternal, so everything else is in some form or fashion created. When we place our trust in something created rather than the creator, we're idolaters. We worship idols. He goes on and says this, Therefore, here's the result of idolatry. God gave them over in the sinful desires of their bodies to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. Wow, that was a big jump, don't you think? How did we jump from worshiping created stuff to sexual immorality? He says, it's because they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. Amen. So he talks about people who follow their own path or worshiping something else, something created, throws in that clause about sexual immorality, and then... Why, why does he do that? A lot of arguments here. I believe he does it because of all the drives in humanity, the drive for sex is, number one, blow food. You know, uh, food is, we've got to have food and water to survive. But beyond that, sex is the thing that drives most humans. They, it's their whole definition of pleasure. Uh, it's their idea of what life is all about. It involves worship. Paul is saying that when we worship created things, we get on a path that's going to take us to a place we may not have ever intended to go. 
If you do not worship the true God, and really nobody does apart from the power of the Holy Spirit that draws them to the name of Jesus, then you have to be worshiping something else. And when you do, God is basically saying, if that's what you want, then go ahead. If that's the choice that you're making, then go ahead. If you want to trade the real God for a fake God, I'll let you do it. Here's how Eugene Peterson in the message puts verses 26 and following. He says this, worse followed. So what he's saying is, choosing to worship the created, we deny there's a God, worship the created rather than the creator, give our bodies over to whatever we want to give it to, serve those things. Then he says, worse followed. Refusing to know God, they soon didn't know how to be human either. Women didn't know how to be women, men didn't know how to be men. Sexually confused, they abused and defiled one another, women with women, men with men, all lust, no love. And then they paid for it. Oh, how they paid for it. Emptied of God and love, godless and loveless wretches. He says, when we follow God, we lose our identity. I mean, excuse me, when we don't follow God, we follow our own way, we lose our identity. And and it's a terrible picture. Men forget how to be men. Women forget how to be women. Everybody can be some sort of mixed up thing. We lose God. We lose love. We become godless and loveless wretches. He goes on and says, since they didn't bother to acknowledge God, God did what? He quit bothering them and let them run loose. And then all hell broke loose. Maybe a little stark way that he puts it, but he's meaning hell on earth became a reality. When we lose God's design, when we lose God's plan, then what we're left with is disorder and chaos. Everybody doing what's right in their own eyes. Verses 28 through 32, back in the NIV version, says this, Furthermore, Since they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, he gave them over to a depraved mind to do what ought not to be done. A depraved mind is a mind that can't tell any longer right from wrong. It has no, uh, some versions use the term reprobate, depraved. I know that sounds so judgmental to some of us, but basically what he's saying is, When we choose to go our own way, eventually we get to a place where our mind can no longer determine what's right and wrong. We call something right when it's wrong. We call something wrong when it's right because our mind can no longer be able to tell the truth. It is the consequence of us following our own way. It's the consequences of us worshiping created stuff rather than creator. They become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. Now, before I get into this, many times we think automatically, because people have used this passage to talk against homosexuality, but look at the list Paul is about to unleash on us of what constitutes depravity. It's not at times what we think it is. I mean, so far we're okay, full of envy, murder. It's going to go on. Strife deceit, and malice. 
You with me so far? Those seem horrible, depraved things, don't they? I mean, if you just kind of look at them. Then he goes, gets a little, they're gossips, slanderers. That doesn't seem quite in the same category. But according to Paul, it's part of being, when we can't tell right from wrong, we speak lies about people and think it's okay. We speak in a way that just damages people. I saw a TED Talk yesterday. I watched the whole thing, uh, and it was fascinating to me. If I mention the person's name who gave the TED Talk, it's going to give you a judgment about the talk itself. Because the talk was about living in a shame-filled culture. And that we are in an age where it used to be that, let's say, somebody shamed another person. That it, would pro- it was a temporary, small, isolated event. But we live in a culture where over the last 20 years, shame has become an economic driving force. And that um, you can shame somebody worldwide with the internet, and, and, and that we all make mistakes, and how would you like for your mistakes to be published to the entire world? This person was uniquely positioned to talk about this. She was very articulate, um, did a very good job of talking about it because her name's Monica Lewinsky. And she was one of the, vi- she would say, I made horrible mistakes. She wasn't trying to disclaim what she did, but she talked about how her sins went worldwide and her name has become synonymous with shame gossip slanders god haters insolent arrogant and boastful they invent ways of doing evil they disobey their parents oh i mean it seems like getting a little more Disobey their parents, they are senseless, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but approve of those who practice them. I I see no better description of 21st century America than what Paul says in Romans. Now, Obviously, they were fighting the same battle 2,000 years ago. Ancient Rome entered the same place. It is the natural outcome of any generation that follows after their own way. Here's Here's the order as I see it. They love and worship stuff. They practice or do the worship of their stuff. They have an inability to decide or discern what's right from wrong. They deny God. And as a matter of fact, he says they become haters of God. There's one thing to deny God. There's another thing to stand actively opposed to God. And then they encourage others to do the same. It is a road that leads to death. We live in a crazy world. This week, this week, the Italian designers, uh, Domenico Dolce and Stefano Gabbana, Brian Shoup, you know those guys? Uh, Dolce and Gabbana? I, I think so. Uh, came, 
they, I, didn't, I don't really know me either. They came out in defense of the traditional definition of marriage and the family as being between a man and a woman. Dolce & Cabana work within the design industry. They're evidently very, very famous. Um, the reaction from within gay advocacy groups was very swift and very strong. Elton John vowed to never wear Dolce & Cabana clothing again and urged others to join him in boycotting the firm. The irony is this. Dolce & Cabana are both gay. But they stood and said, we still, we're both gay, but we believe in the traditional definition. I, I mean, the world has gone crazy. It's where we live. Now, I'm, I don't have any Dolce & Cabana stuff. I can't afford $750 T-shirts. So I buy the JCPenney uh, brand. <laughs> you, think, you think I'm kidding? My T-shirts come from JCPenney. We live in a day where there's just chaos all around us. And the pursuit of life, the pursuit of happiness, is one. Here's a, I know I'm kind of muttering around here, but I, I, this is critical to us. Thomas Jefferson uh, wrote in the Declaration of Independence that there's life, liberty, and the pursuit of Happiness. Actually, his first phrase was the pers- phrase was the pursuit of perf- uh, possessions. Uh, they changed the word to happiness. Sounded a little more pursuit of happiness. Listen, the problem with the pursuit of happiness is you can pursue something, but you're not going the right way. You're pursuing something, but you're not going the right way. Last week, Kathy and I were uh, in St. Louis. And in the lobby of the hotel we're staying in was an exhibition to Lewis and Clark. Lewis and Clark started their expedition to the west um, from St. Louis, headed to try and find their way to the, to the, to the coast. And um, they had a, these statues to them. And I was thinking, how incredible if I was standing right here on the edge of the banks of the Mississippi River, and I'm saying, I'm going to go find a river that t- they were trying to find a way to get to the Pacific Ocean. They they didn't know how far to go. They didn't know where they were going. They just were going. We're going to find a way. They got to the Rocky Mountains. You've probably heard the story. They got to the top of, they see the Rocky Mountains. Oh, I can't wait. We get up there. We're going to see the ocean. They get up there. More mountains, more mountains, more mountains. Nothing. They never, I mean, it took forever for them to find it. And then it was remarkable to me. I was like, I can understand just keep going west so you find the water. How'd they find their way back to St. Louis would be the part that uh, is remarkable to me. Well, as you know, they um, built this arch in St. Louis, um, this big arch. This is the 50th anniversary of the building of the arch as a symbol of the gateway to the west as they talk about Lewis and Clark headed out to, headed out to the ocean. So Kathy and I spent the night at a hotel in downtown St. Louis, I had asked for a view of the arch from our room. It's a downtown hotel, so Kathy and I, um, we drive our car uh, up to the hotel and uh, get the luggage out, put it in one of those little carts. Kathy says, I'll wheel the stuff up to the room. And um, I said, okay, I'll go park the car, and I'll, I'll meet you at the room. Well, the room was like, it was, it was a big room, and it had floor-to-ceiling windows. So Kathy had opened up on two sides. 
Kathy had opened up all of the curtains. She likes the view and to look out and all of that. So I walk into the bedroom part of the thing, and I see this. I just look out my window, and I'm like, holy cow. I mean, it's like the arch is in our bedroom. Um, This is not like magnified. This is not. It's just, I just took a quick picture, and I said to Kathy, wow, what a view. She goes, yeah, it's great. I'm like, well, it's a little understated. I think it's pretty incredible that I got this room. I'm not getting the props I think I deserve for uh, arranging, getting this incredible view. And this is a little foggy that day. And so I'm just standing there looking at the arch. I'm thinking, that's incredible. It's like 630 feet tall. It's, I mean, it's massive. All of a sudden, Kathy goes, there's the arch. I mean, she never saw it before. I mean, all the windows are open. She's been in the room. She finally, like, she'd been looking down. I said, what were you looking at? How could you? It's in our bedroom. How could you not see it? And she goes, I was looking down at the cars. I was looking down at the stuff. She said, it's foggy. I mean, she was going through the whole list of things. But you could not miss it. But that's the way we live life. God is right there. In everything, God exists. He's there for us, but we are so busy at times looking at other stuff that we miss who he is and what he's doing in our lives. Here's the other path. It's the path of permanent pleasure. The path of permanent pleasure. How are we going to find joy? How are we going to find happiness? King David, hundreds of years before Paul, writes this in Psalm 16. Lord, you have assigned me my portion and my cup. You have made my lot secure. The boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Surely I have a delightful inheritance. I will praise the Lord who counsels me. Even at night my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad, my tongue rejoices, my body will also rest secure, because you will not abandon me to the grave, nor will you let your Holy One see decay. All of this so far, David is setting up. Lord, thank you for what you've given me. The boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. I've got a delightful inheritance from the Lord. Your ways are before me. Uh, even if I die, you're not going to let my body see decay. And he's talking about himself, but he's also, it's a prophetic psalm about Jesus um, not ever decaying, being raised from the dead. And then he says this passage, which is one of my life verses. He says, you have made known to me the path of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence, with eternal pleasures at your right hand. Right before these verses, David, by the way, says, uh, starting in verses 3 and 4, he says, sorrows increase for those who chase after other gods. He said, sorrows are gonna, if you're going to go after other gods, your sorrows are going to... He contrasts hundreds of years before Paul ever did the path of our own personal way, chasing after other gods or following God's way. God's path is the path of unceasing joy and eternal pleasure. It's the reality. Everything else is just the shadow. It's the fake. It's the what the world has to offer on this path 
the path of personal pursuit is a counterfeit to what God has to offer. Sin is a counterfeit of God's reality. By the way, I don't want to say to you, I I remember when I was little, oh, people would say, you know, sin is just, it's not enjoyable, it's not pleasurable, it's not, it's a lie. Sin is very pleasurable for the moment. But the exacting cost, what it takes out of us, where it leads us, it won't be there. It robs you. It exacts a price from you. One is a spiral upward to presence and joy and love. One is a spiral downward that leads to death. It says in Hebrews eleven twenty five about Moses, he chose to be mistreated along with the people of God rather than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a short while. And sin is pleasurable for a short while. John 10.10, Jesus says, The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. That's that one path. But I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. He gives us life. And that life is one of joy and abundant living. He gives us a life that is as it says in John 15, 11, I've told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be what? Do you want complete joy? Do you want pleasures evermore? The fullness of joy? I mean, isn't that what we're looking for? Now listen, your life may stink. But your circumstances don't dictate your joy. Because your joy comes from following the path of life, following after him. He has made known to us the path of life. Joy in his presence, eternal pleasures evermore. Until we find more joy in his presence than in pursuing sin, we'll keep pursuing sin. Let me say this again. Until we find more joy in his presence, then sin will keep pursuing sin because the joy and pleasure it gives us, the temporary stuff, it's like an addiction. We can't stop it on our own. The only thing that will help us stop it is by seeing him, holding him, lifting up our eyes to him. Now, I, I know to some of us this sounds like elementary mysticism. How do I follow him, which I can't see, but I can go get a drink, I can have sex, I can view pornography, I can cheat, I can get more money, I can blah, 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 just make up whatever. Well, this created is a shadow of the reality of him. If there's a shadow, there's a real. And we have to pursue the real that's found in Jesus Christ. You may be saying, well, Pastor Bart, I don't don't really feel comfortable with saying I'm against whatever. I'll just say gay marriage. I don't really feel comfortable. It sounds so judgmental for me to say I'm against gay marriage. Here's what I would say. Define yourself by who you are and what you're for. I am for God's plan. I'm for God's plan of marriage in all circumstances in all ways. I'm for God's plan of purity. I'm for God's plan of holiness. I'm for God's way. And it is a a path of joy and life. 
People, we got to keep standing for what we're for, not for what we're against. Because to me, that is the, the joy that will draw people to the name of Christ. Until we hold up a better, more joyful, more fulfilling model, rather than just defining ourselves by what we're against, we won't draw the world to Christ, I don't believe. Because they're looking for meaning. They're looking for joy. They're looking for something more. We have that. Let's show them Christ. Will you have tough times? Yes, you're going to have tough times. But here's what Paul says in Philippians. Rejoice in the Lord always. Hey, I'm going to say it again. Rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. People, look what, look what he's saying about living life. Be a person of joy. Be a person of peace. Don't be anxious. I don't know about you, but I'm battling some of these. Battling to not stay anxious. Battling to stay in a position of peace. Battling to be grateful in all circumstances. But I would claim that's the path to life in Jesus. And we have a choice before us to face either life or death. Deuteronomy 13 See, I said before you today, life and prosperity or death and destruction. For I command you today to love the Lord your God, to walk in his ways, to keep his commands, decrees, and laws. Then you will live and increase, and the Lord your God will bless you in the land you are entering to possess. Again, this is Moses. This is his last words to the people before he's going to go up on the mountain, before he's going to leave them, and they're going to go forward. He says, this day I call heaven and earth as witnesses against you that I have set before you life and death, blessings and curses. Choose life. Choose life. People of fullness, I want to encourage you, choose life. You've got a lot of choices facing you in the days ahead. A lot of stuff. All of us do. Moment by moment, you're going to be facing. Young people, look at me for just a second. You're going to be facing choices that are not just temporary things. They are literally life and death. Whenever you choose to follow your own way, you're choosing a spiral that could lead to death. But follow God. Follow. Follow him. Choose life. Lord, we pray today that we would be a people of life. Lord, when it comes to family, when it comes to children, when it comes to spouses, when it comes to our sexuality and our, our um, relationships and how to raise our children, just everything, Lord, I pray that we would follow your truth, that we would follow the path of life. Lord, we thank you today that there are clear-cut alternatives, though at many many ways they seem blurry. Lord, I pray today you'd give us discernment and that we would follow the path of life. 
Lord, I thank you. I praise you. I pray that we would decisively today choose to follow you and life no matter what. In Jesus' name, amen. Andre's going to come, and uh, we're going to take up an offering. Uh, What a great privilege it always is to worship. Take out your white cards, fill them out. If you're a guest, if you wouldn't mind filling that out um, and putting it in the offering when it's...